So the science is really evolving. So, you know, I wouldn't say it's a mumbo jumbo. There's lots of evidence of different pieces, but it's kind of like 10 blind men feeling an elephant. So like you don't know, is it a trunk? Is it a, you know, is it a wall kind of like the body of the elephant? Is it a, you know, rope-like thing, like the tail of the elephant? So I don't think we have a whole picture yet. Like some of the mechanisms described by Zane, they are definitely possibilities and there are papers supporting them. There are also other papers supporting that there's endothelial dysfunction, there's mitochondrial dysfunction. So I don't think we have the whole puzzle like done yet, but the science is actually progressing at a pretty rapid pace. I really like that analogy. I feel like I need to steal that uh, and then <laughs> use it. In Well, welcome everyone to another episode of the Find My Vaccine podcast. This is Aaron Sahoda, your host. Today, we're going to be looking at a very interesting phenomenon that we haven't really covered in any of the episodes as part of our podcast in the past, and that is long COVID and its link specifically with the role of vaccination, understanding where we are when it comes to our understanding of symptomology in long COVID. There's a cluster of symptoms that are now being used to describe what long COVID is. That definition seems to be changing every week. And do we have a real handle on the true rate of long COVID in the population here in Canada or other spots around the globe? When you look at some of the research, again, there's so much data coming in, a lot of noise, tough to find some of these signals. But we're very lucky today to have two very special guest experts on the show. They're both from the East, and I like to say both from the East Coast, because anything East of Calgary, I call the East Coast. So we have a Dr. Angela Chung from UHN and Dr. Zane Chagla from St. Joseph's in Hamilton, Ontario. Dr. Chung is a professor of medicine and internal medicine specialist, as well as a senior scientist at the University Health Network in Toronto. She holds a tier one Canada research chair and obtained her medical training from John Hopkins and her PhD from Harvard. Dr. Chung is leading multiple studies to learn more about long COVID, including co-leading a trial called CanCov, which explores short and long-term outcomes for hospitalized and non-hospitalized COVID-19 patients, including 2,000 patients as part of this trial, as well as family caregivers, and more than 100 investigators. She's also the co-lead of the Reclaim trial, a Canada-wide study assessing the effectiveness of various interventions in patients with long COVID. Finally, Dr. Chung is the KY and Betty Ho Chair of Integrative Medicine at U of T. And of course, Dr. Zane Chegla, who's an Associate Professor at McMaster University. He's an Infectious Disease Physician and Medical Director of Infection Control at St. Joseph's Healthcare in Hamilton. Dr. Chegla has his medical training from Queens and a Master of Science in Infectious Diseases and a Diploma in Tropical Medicine and Hygiene from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. He's a local, provincial, and national leader when it comes to COVID-19 advice and has contributed to provincial and federal policy planning, as well as several clinical trials in COVID-19, including a prospective cohort study looking at respiratory physiology and radiologic features of patients post-COVID with persistent symptoms, including those with long COVID and those who were critically ill. And he's no stranger to the podcast. Thanks so much for being here. I'm going to start with Dr. Chung. So this is a question we've heard Dr. Chegel answer. Tell us something about yourself that our viewers may not know about you. Do you have a secret talent, a hobby? Do you have a secret sticker collection or your master chef <laughs> that no one knows about? Well, I have been trying to grow heirloom tomatoes from seeds this summer. And during the pandemic, I have been baking a lot of breads. So 
Okay, uh, Baker, uh, that's quite a popular one. We've heard from a few people. We had Dr. Srinivas Murthy on an episode just a few months ago, and he was going to enter the Great Canadian Baking Show. He promised us on air, and I think he put in a submission, right, uh, Dr. Chagall? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Perfect. And Dr. Chagall, tell something about yourself that you haven't told us before on an episode. Um, I'll tell you a funny story. So I, I'm a, a huge Raptors fan. You know, I, I think on the prior episode, I said I was a huge fan of the basketball player too. And about a week ago, my daughter, who's three, kept on saying she wanted to wear her Raptors clothes. And I, I don't think I've actually mentioned it before around the house. And so I was just a bit perplexed and couldn't understand. And, you know, she was quite upset about it. My wife was dropping off my daughter to daycare today. And one of the teachers was like, oh, tomorrow is Jersey Day. Didn't you realize tomorrow is Jersey Day for all the kids? And it was that moment my wife called me and was like, oh, God, this is why she keeps asking for the Raptors jersey, the Raptors stuff, the Raptors stuff, right? So uh, we realized this about noon today and uh, scrambled to find kid-sized Raptors gear for tomorrow. But she got her hat and shirt, and she's ecstatic to wear it tomorrow. Amazing. So we, it runs in the family yeah, now. Yeah, can officially absolutely. Say. <laughs> Interesting. The Raptors, uh, let's see how they do this season. Uh, the Grizzlies, unfortunately, they faded away quite a while ago. <laughs> but it's Canada's team, and we'll see how they do in the upcoming season. So I want to talk to you guys about long COVID, as I mentioned in my introduction. Could you tell our listeners, what's the most up-to-date definition of long COVID? Because I find the consensus is still very fluid around it. Well, I think the WHO had sort of a practical clinical diagnosis case definition of long COVID by saying that anyone who have had lingering symptoms for greater than three months, that after they either presumed or lab confirmed COVID infection. And these symptoms have to last for greater than two months, so you can't just have it for a day and can't be explained by other conditions. So if you have a pre-existing condition of, say, migraines, and you still get migraines, that doesn't quite count. So I think a lot of um, people across Canada have been using this diagnosis definition. There are differences in what CDC is using. They use an earlier cutoff of four weeks. And there are some sort of you know differences. But I would say there are more similarities in terms of the case definition than differences. Yeah, and I would say practically, this is really meant to be more inclusive, right? As we are learning about this disorder more, as we're trying to characterize patients more, we're still in the research and discovery phase as well as treatment phase for these individuals. You know, everyone would love a very technical definition that encompasses everyone with high sensitivity and specificity, but the reality of the situation is, again, these looser definitions make sure that patients are included for care that need to be included for care rather than being excluded for care with a very tight consensus definition. So as much as we, we try, this is probably the best definition we'll have for the foreseeable future until more is characterized. You wouldn't be surprised if a few months from now, that definition was more well-defined and pivoted from what it is today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we're learning a lot. There's research coming around symptom complexes that are highly predictive. There's research coming around in terms of biomarkers that are more predictive. And so I think we're going to get to a bit more of a consensus definition encompassing other elements than just a symptoms and time since COVID definition in that sense. But I don't think it's anytime soon, though, because 
you have to consider that whether it's biomarkers or other things, how accessible it is as well. Because usually, currently, the research in the research setting, we have access to all sorts of things. But in the community, you can't get a lot of these special tests. Okay, at least more specialized point of care type of tests done right away. You have to get them in an inpatient setting. Now, you know, along those lines, do we know the underlying mechanisms generally? What's going on here when we talk about long COVID and how much do we know? So there's a lot of theories and kind of explorational pathways for pathophysiologic mechanisms. There's work being done discussing persistent kind of antigenic stimulus. There are still viral proteins or viral elements being expressed that lead to inflammation and potentially secondary consequences from that effect. There's a lot of discussion around immune dysregulation and autoimmunity, and again, just a very aberrant immune response and potentially even an autoimmune response that leads to organ damage and effects. Obviously, we know in prior to COVID that critical illness and those who get seriously ill from COVID, many patients who experience critical illness have persistent effects from their critical illness in their recovery, and that also is a part of this complex there's lots of discussion around tissue damage that's done during the COVID episode and whether or not that that is also the, one of the major pathogenic risk factors. And then finally, there's work even being done on things like dysbiosis and alterations of the microbiome as part of the COVID spectrum. So lots of different pathways. And again, it's not totally clear which each person falls. If there's multiple overlapping pathways that different patients fall within, and I think this is where a lot of the work is being done trying to characterize immunologically from protein expression, from autoimmunity and in other domains in terms of what these patients look like as they persist through their illness compared to healthy controls. Wow. It seems like uh, almost everything you can think of. Angela, anything to add? Um, well, so the science is really evolving. So, you know, I wouldn't say it's a mumbo jumbo. There's lots of evidence of different pieces, but it's kind of like 10 blind men feeling an elephant. So like you don't know, is oh. it a trunk? Is it a, you know, is it a wall kind of like the body of the elephant? Is it a, you know, rope-like thing, like the tail of the elephant? So I don't think we have a whole picture yet. Like, so some of the mechanisms described by Zane, they are definitely possibilities and there are papers supporting them. There are also other papers supporting that there's endothelial dysfunction, there's mitochondrial dysfunction. So. I don't think we have the whole puzzle like done yet, but the science is actually progressing at a pretty rapid pace. I really like that analogy. I feel like I need to steal that uh, and then <laughs> use it in a presentation, but that's a great way of saying that we need to really feel out the full elephant to be confident in understanding what's in front of us. Now, when you look at the symptoms, I think maybe, Angela, you mentioned underlying sort of pathophysiology, you know, comorbidities and understanding what's attributed to long COVID versus what's a pre-existing disease unrelated to COVID-19. If a patient's coming in with, um, let's say, pre-existing depression, for example, versus brain fog is one that's being characterized as a symptom of long COVID. Is there any way we can reconcile or resolve some of the baseline characteristics of these patients versus understanding what's truly long COVID and what's not? So I think we really need to look at the different populations. So the healthy, non-hospitalized populations, most of them are quite healthy prior to their long COVID. So they don't really have COPD or, you know, <laughs> other diseases. The risk factors for getting it uh, include being female, female sex, 
between the ages of like 40 to 60, and obesity also increased the risk. Outside of that, I think the usual comorbidities like diabetes, COPD, <clears throat> whatever your usual sort of medical conditions that would put you at risk for being hospitalized, it's not the same risk factors for actually having long COVID. So there are healthy people who have not had anything, marathon runners, you know, athletes, very high-functioning professionals who actually also get long COVID. And so that's the part that we need to better understand as well in terms of what are the predisposing factors and can we actually do something about them as well. That's very interesting in terms of what puts you maybe at higher risk, at least what we know right now for long COVID, because it's a relevant potential conversation, especially for primary care providers on the front line. We get a lot of questions and, and we have some questions for you about, you know, what do I need to recognize and be more definitive to say, okay, this patient potentially may have long COVID and I need to get them referred to a specialized center or clinic. So hold that thought. I would agree with everything that uh, Angela had said. I, I would say though that you know, it is important as part of the WHO definition, just make sure that we walk through patients and their medical history to make sure that whatever symptoms they're presenting with are within the spectrum of them. They're a healthy patient, I think, and we've seen athletic patients with very severe post-COVID symptoms, then it's a bit easier um, when it does get to the older spectrum or patients with underlying histories that you just do want to make sure that you are going through the history appropriately, that you're doing a full medical assessment. And that even if it is long COVID on the background of an acute medical history, that we at least recognize the acute medical history, if that's going to give a quality of life change in that individual. And this is where it becomes really difficult. And as we get to kind of clinical management, really specialized in that sense and around that patient just to make sure that whole patient is understood in terms of their symptoms, in terms of their medical history, and kind of what is COVID-related, where some patients are very related and, in fact, pretty much 100% COVID-related, and others where their underlying medical issues may flare during COVID. And, you know, we obviously know mm -hmm. that the health system has been stressed over the last two years and patients may not have access to great care. We have to recognize those patients, too, and what we can do to help mitigate that as part of other underlying diseases as well. some point and really practical because I was going to ask you about how good in terms of the quality of data do we have on who these people are and what the long COVID prevalence really is. How accurate of a picture do we have in terms of the epidemiological data around a percentage of the population who might have long COVID? Yeah, I mean, I I, I like Angela's example of the elephant because I think that that is a little bit of the, the publications we've seen over the last two years. I think they give us a good sense of some of the pieces of the puzzle, but they, you know, have... Every study has a little bit of a methodologic quirk to it that makes it harder to interpret this for a larger population. And so if you think of studies for long COVID, um, we have survey-based studies, which I think are important because they capture the breadth of symptoms that patients have. But we always see a little bit of bias in self-administered surveys in terms of who responds, like volunteer effects, et cetera. And so getting controls is important for those studies to actually make sure that we understand what that means on the background of a population. There's seroprevalence studies, but again, those are um, those are really helpful, unfortunately, or fortunately with vaccination, seroprevalence becomes a little harder as you have to look at different antigens. Again, you have to recruit a population and do blood work, which is even harder, especially in the context of remote study. 
And so they're they're a little bit harder to stage, although they may be a bit better to kind of describe the symptoms. And I think that that really does talk about when we see a lot of these different estimates that are being put out by the media and through some of these preprints and studies is, you know, there's a lot of variability in terms of these estimates. It really does go back to that study methodology and particularly having a control arm to that study that represents Unfortunately, the population that we've had over the last two and a half years, which is a bit of a different population than 2018 and 2019 in terms of external stressors and uh, medical systems issues and all that stuff. So I think we see different prevalences through the literature. We've seen prevalences up to 40%. We've seen prevalences as low as 1% to 5%. We see different prevalences during different eras of disease, particularly much higher earlier in the disease when immunity wasn't particularly an issue and people were very susceptible. And again, between different variants, different periods, pre and post vaccine, et cetera. And so I think we we have some suggestion that it happens and it's not a, an insignificant number of cases that it happens to. The actual number, I think, varies quite significantly. And again, there's just a lot of differences in terms of the methodology of the studies that are being put out here. Yeah. And the definitions in the studies as well, right? So like depends on like, did they only include non-hospitalized patients or did they include ICU patients? And do they count one symptom as having long COVID or, you know, a list of only 10 symptoms? Or do they open it up? And we know that from various papers that there are more than 200 symptoms that have been reported. And so if you restrict your data set and ask people, do you have one of these 10 symptoms, you would get a different answer than if it's an open-ended question. So you know, there's there are lots of variability around sort of the prevalence. But I would say that in order to try to get a better uh, handle on the prevalence of long COVID in Canada, PHAC, so Public Health Agency of Canada, collaborated with StatsCan to do a sort of census-type survey. And so we should have sort of the first round of results soon. So uh, stay tuned. Well, there you go. It's dropped first on this podcast, maybe, but uh, <laughs> we can come back for a second round and we can dissect that. But it's very interesting how you guys mentioned um, it's the, the type of study, what they look at, how they define this. The variance between them doesn't give us a definitive answer. And you know, I think I was reading something from the UK about patient self-reporting through an app and crowdsourcing and mm-hmm. different methodologies can yield different results. Now, I know both of you guys are involved in directly observing, assessing patients who may be suffering from long COVID. And I'm going to start with you, Angela. Could you describe the RECLAIM trial that uh, you're leading? Uh, sure. So RECLAIM stands for Recovering from COVID-19. So that's the C. Um Lingering Symptoms, that's the L, and it's an adaptive integrative medicine trial. It's a CIHR-funded study, and we are targeting sort of the root causes of long COVID. So we try to pick uh, therapies that are targeting the persistent viral antigen issue, targeting the inflammatory issue, targeting endothelial dysfunction. So it's a multi-arm study. We have been busy trying to get this up and running. And so hopefully very soon we can open. Okay, well, that's quite exciting. And this is a national study. And I guess I might be a bit premature here asking for results uh, or top line results at (laughs) least. Uh, But I'm assuming that this is still something that's ongoing in terms of the measurement. And there'll be a bit of time before you get any results. Yeah, I mean, 
So we have been doing a national study across five provinces and 18 sites called CANCOV, which is a longitudinal cohort study in COVID-19. And we recruited more than 2,000 patients across the provinces and more than 100 caregivers. And so these patients are from non-hospitalized group, as well as those who are hospitalized in the acute care and also hospitalized in the ICU. And so those, that, that study, CANCOV, and you can look on the CANCOV.net website, that study, we have more preliminary findings. Okay, we'll make sure to put them in the show links. Zane, could you tell us a little bit about what you're involved in? Yeah, really since the beginning of the pandemic, myself and a, a respirologist, uh, Dr. Becky Amer, have, have been running a post-acute COVID study, really looking at respiratory physiology and respiratory imaging in COVID patients through the spectrum of their illness, done kind of more acutely, and then nine months to a year after their COVID diagnosis. And then really just looking at supporting patients through the, particularly patients that have um, post-acute respiratory concerns with their COVID. And again, this is a spectrum from critically ill on ECMO to, you know, uh, non-hospitalized outpatients with mild illness that really develop severe respiratory symptoms afterwards. And so patients get baseline pulmonary function tests, they get baseline low-dose CT scans at three and nine months. We've recruited about 200, I think, across the two hospital sites that have been doing this. And again, we've been able to also use kind of directed resources towards other secondary testing for respiratory concerns in terms of walk tests, cardiopulmonary exercise tests, et cetera, to really demonstrate exactly what the major concerns in terms of respiratory physiology are after COVID. And again, try to relate them to kind of um, the level of disease people presented with initially in order to get a better sense of that ballpark. So I think we are starting to get everything together for an abstract variety week in October, and hopefully we'll have some results to report soon on that as well. Awesome. So again, we'll follow up with you in the fall, see what's up in a few months. And as you guys can hear, these are the experts. We have the experts on the show today who will be answering some of your questions around this topic as well. So uh, that sounds very exciting. And these are very big endeavors that take a lot of planning and a lot of time to understand, but very important work that you guys are working on. Now, when we talk specifically about our colleagues in primary care, some patients might, you know, see the media and think, I'm having a lot of fatigue, a lot of brain fog. I had COVID a few weeks ago. Maybe I have long COVID. I think that when you talk to primary care providers, let's say pharmacists, GPs, nurses, obviously very swamped in today's environment. I have a, a couple of questions around how well equipped do you think they are in terms of identifying patients on the front line for long COVID? And do we need to provide additional training if they're not? What are your thoughts? So I think most physicians have been focusing on the acute side of COVID because we see when people are acutely ill, they die from COVID. So I think the attention has been more on the acute side. Now that we're in the third year of the pandemic, more physicians, more healthcare providers are more aware of long COVID. Um, I think also because their patients are approaching them with these non-specific symptoms, like why am I feeling this way? <laughs> and so I think they are certainly seeing more patients with these symptoms. In terms of education, I would say that uh, there's always a need for more education. In Ontario, there's something called ECHO Ontario. It's an educational program for healthcare providers. And I've run it two years in a row on COVID-19 and long COVID is part of that. 
And we're actually looking at perhaps doing another more specialized sort of series on long COVID as well. And the hope is that we can educate primary care providers. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. That's a good point too. Initial, I guess, first phase of the pandemic was really identifying patients who are at high risk, acute symptoms and managing that and getting help. Sometimes it's characterized in the media as this second sort of public health crisis with long COVID. And like you say, we all need to be educated and continue our learning. So there might be some unmet needs that can be served there. Zane, any thoughts from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I would echo that primary care is obviously very busy with everything prior to the pandemic and all the needs during the pandemic on top of changing the way they practice during the pandemic. But they're an incredible resource for patients, right? And, you know, the, the longitudinal relationships made by primary care to their patients are probably the biggest tool to identify really something is wrong, right? And, and you know, people like myself and Angela, you know, are, get involved with patients as a first start as they've been suffering for some time, but really recognizing that suffering, especially with someone that knows that patient well, that knows their baseline, that knows that they're clearly different from that baseline, you know, primary care is going to have to be a part of this uh, long term. And again, that longitudinal care is such a powerful piece to really be a part of that recognition that patients are not the same and suffering from something that is very different than their baseline. Yeah, longitudinal care and those relationships that already exist, they, they have a better idea of who their patients are and the recognition that the patient is suffering something different from the baseline. They can play an important role in triage and detecting long COVID symptoms and, and further referral to accelerate that patient journey. So yeah, I think there's definitely capacity as we move forward to have them involved in this. Now, I want to move on to potential interventions for mitigating long COVID. And I'm specifically thinking of vaccines as an intervention, not even prevention in this case, but does fully vaccinated or boosted or just being vaccinated with one of the COVID vaccines, does it mitigate the risk of contracting long COVID or at least mitigate the sequelae of long COVID? What's the research say? What have you seen? Sorry to keep you guys hanging. It's Aaron's fault. Please join us for part two of our conversation next week where Dr. Chung and Dr. Chagla explore the role of vaccination status and long COVID. Aaron, you forgot to mention, as a reminder, we kind of have to say this, the opinions expressed on the Find My Vaccine podcast are for educational purposes only and do not constitute nor replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult with your healthcare provider if you have any concerns or questions about your health. Check out the links in the podcast show notes. Thanks again to Dr. Chung and Dr. Chagla.